Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 3, Episode 75. Last week, I continued working my way through Exodus, in that episode covering the biblical concept of a sabbatical. I also took a bit of time to commemorate the podcast's third anniversary. If you missed that episode, you should go back and give it a listen. Unfortunately, then, I didn't have enough time to cover the several questions I'm frequently asked. I'll get to those today, at the end of this episode. Before that, I'm picking up in the middle of Exodus chapter 23, with the first three mandated festivals, in this case, the Festival of Unleavened Bread. And with that, let's get started. When I left off last week, I had just wrapped up the concept of a biblical sabbatical, as first seen in Exodus chapter 23. The next section in that chapter is about how God directs the Israelites to celebrate three annual festivals, all to honor Him. Which gets me to my next topic. But first, the actual text, from the New Revised Standard Version, beginning in verse 14. Three times in the year you shall hold a festival for me. You shall observe the festival of unleavened bread. As I commanded you, you shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Aviv, for in it you came out of Egypt. No one shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall observe the festival of harvest, of first fruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field. You shall observe the festival of ingathering at the end of the year, when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. Three times in the year all your males shall appear before the Lord God. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, or let the fat of my festival remain until the morning. The choicest of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a kid in its mother's milk. End quote. And a kid, we can deduce, is a baby goat, perhaps sheep, not the other type of kid, of course. So we have the festival of unleavened bread the festival of harvest, and the festival of ingathering. Further instructions are found in the book of Leviticus, where it reads, In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month, at twilight, there shall be a Passover offering to the Lord. And on the fifteenth day of the same month is the festival of unleavened bread to the Lord. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall not work at your occupations. For seven days you shall present the Lord's offerings by fire. On the seventh day there shall be a holy convocation. You shall not work at your occupations. End quote. In this, we see the relationship between the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread. But there is a bit of confusion as sometimes you see the word Passover used for the entire festival. But remember, the first Passover was actually just a single night, and the festival is to last seven days. The simplest way to think of it is that the Passover, as part of the festival of unleavened bread, 
but in reality, the term Passover has expanded to cover the entire festival. And I'm really trying to avoid being overly pedantic, so for the sake of brevity, and maybe at a small expense of being exactly correct, I'll just use the single word term Passover for the entire festival. Obviously, the festival is related to the liberation of the Israelites from Egypt at the start of the Exodus. It's generally celebrated in the spring and is associated with the first fruits from the barley plant. Why barley? Well, of the ancient cultured grains available to the Israelites, it was the first to ripen. So, literally, the first grain of the season. As for the prohibition of leavening during the Exodus, the Israelites left in such a hurry that they could not wait for bread dough to leaven, meaning to rise. In commemoration, for the duration of Passover, the week or so, no leavened bread is to be eaten. But that's not all. Essentially, all traces of leavening are scrubbed from houses and other places. More on that in a minute. But bread isn't completely eschewed. Instead of your typical airy starch, it's replaced by a flat, unrisen bread, modernly called matzo. As for the actual time of year, it begins on the 15th day of the Hebrew month of Nizan, which typically falls in March or April in our Western Gregorian calendar, as in Pope Gregory. Eventually, one day, I'll get to him. At the rate I'm going, likely in the 10,000th episode. More specifically, modernly, Passover begins on the 15th day of the Hebrew month, typically on the night of a full moon, after the Northern Hemisphere's vernal equinox, which is a reminder that the Hebrew calendar is primarily lunar. This is a bit different from the timing in ancient Israel when, to ensure it did not start before spring, so they had to be sure that the first day of Nisan was not before the barley was ripe, and this was the signal that spring had begun. Overall, if the barley was not ripe by the 15th of Nisan, an extra month was added, which is worthy of a short sidebar on the Hebrew calendar. The solar year, meaning the time it takes for the Earth to make its circuit around the Sun, is about 11 days longer than the 12 lunar months of the Hebrew calendar. Of course, the Earth's orbit takes about 365 and a quarter days. The Hebrew calendar is based on the moon going through its phases, a cycle of roughly 29 and a half days. So, 12 months of 29 and a half days gives you 354 days. And this presents a problem. Now, the Old Testament makes no mention of the shifting calendar, but you know it had to be dealt with. If it weren't, it would take only about 16 years for the two calendars to be six months out of sync. So, the Passover, which should be at the start of spring, would instead be at the beginning of autumn. And that would be counter to God's direction in Exodus 23. So what to do? Modernly, we have a leap day every four years, but not exactly. We don't have that leap day in the years that cannot be divided evenly by 400. So, 
the year 2000 had a leap day, but 1900 did not, and 2100 will not. We all have various ways of dealing with the fact that the Earth's rotation around its axis does not evenly fit into its orbit around its star. Oh, the trivia. A rabbit hole in a rabbit hole. Back to the Hebrew calendar, and eventually back to the Passover. In ancient Israel, every two to three years, an additional month was inserted into the calendar to get everything right again. It's thought the decision to insert the month was based on a reading of the ripeness of barley, which needed to occur before you could celebrate the festival. There is a month in their calendar named Adar, which literally translates to spring. And if that month came and went, and spring had yet to arrive, then it would be a good bet to assume the additional month would be inserted. They also knew enough about the solar, meaning sun, cycle to work that into the decision on when to insert the month. Keep in mind that it's thought the Egyptians had figured this out when they were building the pyramids, which was about 1,300 years prior to the first Passover. So, the Israelites knew when the equinoxes and solstices were, and factored that in too. For us Christians, this factors into the dating of Easter, which is on the first Sunday, following the first full moon, after the spring equinox. So, as early as March 22nd, and as late as April 25th. As for the dating of Passover, around the 4th century AD, Jewish rabbinical authorities began to determine the date of the annual Passover celebration mathematically. And that's enough for now on the Hebrew calendar. Back to the festival of unleavened bread and Passover. In ancient Israel, it was during these three annual festivals that much of the population would make a pilgrimage to various holy sites, such as Mount Gerizim on the west bank of the Jordan, and to the temple in Jerusalem. And remember that it was during the Passover that the crucifixion of Christ occurred, when Jerusalem would have seen a swelling in its population. Residents and pilgrims all there for the religious festival. Hence the reason Easter and Passover usually align on the calendar. During the seven days of the festival, various traditions are observed, including holiday meals, special prayer services, and refraining from work. Overall, it's usually seven days, but a few Jewish sects choose to celebrate over eight days. And there are a small number of theories around the extra day. First, some researchers posit that Jews outside of Israel could not be certain if their local calendars fully aligned with the official calendar at the Temple of Jerusalem. And when your calendar is variable, like I've already covered, this is a definite concern. In order to slightly mitigate this, these far-flung Jews would add the day. Another theory is that the extra day was added to account for those having to travel great distances as part of the ritual pilgrimage. That way, if they arrived late, they could still participate in some of the festival rituals. It could also have been added as a compromise between the various interpretations of the calendar. Finally, it may have been done to confuse Israel's enemies. Militaries, 
all throughout history prefer to attack when their enemy is distracted, and a mandatory religious festival provides a great opportunity, but only if you know when the festival will occur. And that's it for the date, but what about the leavening? Jewish tradition took the prohibition of leavening very seriously, to the point that any found in the home was to be disposed of prior to the Passover. The leavening that was not used up prior to Passover was ritually burned. Enterprising Jews would also sell it to non-Jews. Whatever was done with the excess, all of it had to be gone by the beginning of the festival. Modernly, and presumably throughout history, observant Jews used the weeks before Passover to do a thorough house cleaning, removing every dust-sized speck of leavening from every part of the home. The actual requirement, at least in Jewish law, requires the elimination of olive size or larger amounts of leavening, but most households approach the elimination with much greater scrutiny, removing every bit of flour, yeast, and leavening a bit redundant. Also, any utensil that has touched leavening would be quarantined and not used the week of Passover. But the cleaning is not limited to houses. In our modern world, businesses such as hotels and cruise ships, especially those that tailor their services to Jewish guests, undergo the same ritual cleanings. Of course, one item that I need to address is, what is leavening? Well, the actual noun is leaven, and it's merely a substance added to dough to make it rise. Perhaps the most common of these is yeast, but it's not the only such agent. When yeast is added to dough, a biological process produces carbon dioxide that forms bubbles in the dough, hence the rising. Dough without leavening will remain flat, but you can, kind of, cause dough to rise through mechanical kneading, essentially forcing air into the dough. Perhaps the easiest way to think about this is a whipping process, like what is used in the making of whipped cream or some sponge cakes. And even though this does not use leavening, some adherents even avoid these products during Passover. And that's an extremely simplified take on leavening, but enough for this podcast. Their prohibition does not include baking soda, baking powder, or similar products. We typically think of these as leavening, but it's not biological fermentation, simply chemical. So, for the modern adherent, bread products such as bagels, waffles, and pancakes are allowed, as long as they contain no yeast. But sourdough products are not. Just to complicate matters a bit, Wine is fermented by yeast, but wine is not prohibited during the Passover celebration. In fact, there is a rabbinic requirement that four cups of wine be drunk during the Passover meal, and no one, at least those of age, escapes this, not men, not women, not even the poorest person. And why specifically four cups? Each cup serves to represent different facets and events of Jewish history. So, why a prohibition of a substance that causes bread to rise? 
Some Old Testament scholars suggest that the command to abstain from leavened food implies that sacrifices offered to God involve the offering of objects in their most natural state, so closely resembling how they were created by God. Others do as others do and offer different opinions. One such other opinion is that leavening was thought to symbolize corruption and spoiling. Some point out that the bread is used to remind the people what it was like to be a poor slave and should promote humility and cause them to grasp what it means to be free from bondage. Never mind that they enslaved their own people, but I've already covered that. Modern observant families typically own two complete sets of serving dishes, glassware, and silverware. One set for use 51 weeks a year, and the other for the week of Passover. Some go as far as to have separate sinks and dishwashers. Under certain circumstances, some utensils that may have come into contact with leavening can be immersed in boiling water to rid them of any traces of the substance that may have accumulated during the year. And a self-cleaning oven will be cleaned before the Passover, with the high heat burning off any traces. If your oven doesn't self-clean, you can use a blowtorch on the interior. Seriously. Finally, some adherents actually avoid unleavened bread in the month preceding Passover, all to increase their appetite for it. Like I said before, the tradition stems from the beginning of Exodus when the Hebrews left Egypt in such a hurry that there was not enough time to allow baked bread to rise. The bread they took with them was flat, sometimes called matzah. Like many religious observances, the avoidance of leavening is used as a reminder of historic events and sacrifices. At that time, it was common for travelers, pilgrims, really anyone on a journey, to take yeast-free bread with them, owing to that such food traveled well, was light, and had a decent shelf life. The Old Testament isn't the only place where the prohibition of leavening is found. The Elephantine Papyri, from 5th century BC Egypt, and written in Aramaic, also mentions quarantining leavening. The Supigrapha Book of Jubilees, denotes the same slaughtering of lambs, in that case saying the lambs were to be eaten at night. Later historic writers Josephus and Philo make similar comments. Josephus wrote that all of the lambs must be consumed or burned, so that by morning nothing remains. Philo mentioned how the celebratory banquet included hymns and prayers. About that lamb, a flawless lamb or goat, the kid in the passage, was to be set aside and ritually slaughtered at the beginning of the celebration, hearkening back to the first Passover. The meat was then roasted and eaten. At the same time as the Passover, well, really the day before it begins, there's a ceremony called the Fast of the Firstborn. Then, firstborn sons are commanded to fast in order to commemorate the salvation of Hebrew firstborns, Remembering back in Exodus, in chapter 12, at midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the prisoner, who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock, end quote. Except for the firstborn of the Israelites, 
the annual fast of the firstborn lasts only through that one night. Outside of Judaism, obviously, and like I briefly mentioned, the Christian holiday of Easter typically aligns with the Passover. But the holiday, or at least a version of it, is also found in some of Islam. Specifically, in the Sunni sect, fasting is recommended to celebrate the day when Moses and his followers were saved from Pharaoh by God, when he cleared a path to the Red Sea. According to Muslim tradition, the Jews of Medina used to fast on the 10th of Muharram, a sacred month in the Islamic calendar. And this fast was an observance of Passover. For that reason, Muhammad recommended that Muslims fast on this day. Muhammad also required that the Islamic observance differ from the Jewish Passover fast by fasting for two days instead of one, which is a good stopping point for this week's episode. And now for those questions. I get many of the same questions asked often, so I might as well address them here. First, I've been approached by advertisers, and so far, I've turned them all down. I really like not having to worry about how they would feel about the content. One day, there may be a good fit, but so far, none. And I've been blessed enough professionally that the expense of the podcast is not a burden. I also think monetizing it would deflate much of the satisfaction I get from doing it. I'm often asked about my theological leanings. I think I may have addressed this once, but in case I haven't, the quick summary is that I'm Protestant. Having been raised in a household that essentially alternated between Presbyterian and Baptist, but I try to keep all theological implications out of the podcast and focus just on the history. I've been asked once or twice to footnote everything and provide my references. I'm passing on that suggestion. I've written many academic articles where citing is an absolute requirement, and it slows the process down tremendously, and it makes it extremely boring. This isn't an academic forum, and I need to make it less dense instead of more. Also, when's the last time you heard something on the radio or watched an educational program that cited all of their sources, or even any of their sources? They don't, because it's a different format. Like I mentioned a year ago, I've been approached about turning the podcast into a book, and the update is, it's been a couple of different publishers. I consider that a great compliment. My short answer continues to be, Not yet. For now, the same reasons as to why I've shunned advertisers and I'm not footnoting apply. Maybe at some point in the future. I've had a couple of friends and acquaintances who left their professions to pursue their passions. And they're generally very successful. But then something changes and their passions become just another profession. And the joy departs. So, for now, I'm having too much fun, and I don't want to change the secret formula. Not to mention, I'd most likely drive an editor and a publisher a bit crazy. I do get letters, really criticism, about why I use this term or that. Why, for example, especially early on in the podcast, 
I refer to the land inhabited by Abraham by many terms, just not Israel. I don't know if I ever made it obvious, but I really tried to avoid using the word Israel prior to the birth of Jacob, who would later be renamed Israel. The reasons should be obvious, but just in case it isn't, I don't think you should call it Israel prior to the birth of Israel. I sometimes use the word Levant, and a very few, but some listeners took issue with that. And the issue they took tended to center around a modern political, well, really terroristic use of the word. For the record, the Levant is a geographic region that is much bigger than the modern country of Israel, and therefore much larger than ancient Israel. Depending on who you ask, the Levant includes all or part of several modern countries including Israel, Jordan, Lebanon, Syria, and Turkey. Some even think it includes parts of Egypt, Libya, Greece, and Iraq. My use is generally confined to the countries I just listed that are also on the eastern shore of the Mediterranean. It's a word used in a strictly geographic sense. And finally, the last question I'm frequently asked. Who am I? I have yet to disclose the answer. A few people that are extremely close to me know. And that's it. The podcast isn't about me, and it's certainly not about my ego. But do know that I am degreed in the subject of history, from a nationally ranked university on the topic. And I have a doctorate degree. Like I've mentioned before, I've been published academically, and my career has proven very rewarding. And that's enough for me, and about me. I hope you'll keep listening, and I'll provide another update in another year or so. Join me next week when I'll pick up with the other two required festivals, the Festival of the Harvest and the Festival of the Ingathering. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.